Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack. I have here with me from Concord, New Hampshire, the uh, Boston University, is that right? Boston College. Ah, All right, I'm sorry. The Boston College law professor, Shep Melnick, who was the author of a book called The Transformation of Title IX that, uh, when I read it a few years ago, was extremely revelatory to me in terms of serving as a kind of Rosetta Stone of the sort of institutional underpinning of what I call the successor ideology. And sort of, I define the successor ideology as a development within progressive activism that has come to see free speech and due process and other liberal values and other procedural, sort of regular procedural approaches as obstructions and obstacles in the way of a kind of final justice that they are seeking. And, uh, you know, there's this uh, amazing process by which we see the emergence of what Melnick has called administrative entrepreneurs who have been exploiting certain elements of our, of our executive branch uh, design in order to pursue very far-reaching and ambitious projects of social experimentation. And, uh, and, and the book does an excellent job of, of breaking this all down. And uh, to begin with, I think what I want to ask Shep is, you know, sort of in his prefatory notes, uh, he says that there was a lot that the book was originally intended as a chapter of uh, a larger book about the emergence of the civil rights state, um, and and that it grew into a book as the story that he began writing about in two thousand and nine took a, a number of truly remarkable turns um, in the succeeding four or five years since. And so I'd like to talk to Shep about the larger project of which this is a part and, and, and why it became at a certain point a compelling necessary to, necessity to break it off and turn it into its own book. Sure, thanks for that question. Uh, you're right that this really began as one part of a larger project. And as I was writing the larger book, many of these developments in Title IX really came to a head. Uh, the first uh, and probably most important was the expansion of the sexual harassment regulations um, that were occurring as I was starting to write. Uh, and that's a classic example of what you were just talking about, uh, that there was a disregard for what I would consider liberal constitutional process in two very basic ways. One was on how we make government regulation. The idea uh, behind administrative process in the United States generally is you have a relatively open process called notice and comment rulemaking under the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, and that requires you to get input, to get review by other parts of the government. Uh, and in some ways, that's a pluralistic invention that has worked quite well. That was completely sidestepped by the Department of Education in favor of unilaterally declared dear colleague letters. And I'll say a word in a minute about why I think that's a kind of a, a, a telling formulation. But basically announced with no 
uh, opportunity for people to say, well, what about this problem? What about that problem? So that's one side of it. The other is what you just mentioned, which is very little concern, I say no concern, about due process and about freedom of speech. That's why, despite the fact that um, people in academia um, and in law groups are generally in favor of really cracking down on sexual harassment, there's been a lot of pushback because of concerns about due process and the way in which sexual harassment was defined in such a way that it impinged on many legitimate forms of speech. And those two things are connected. When you act unilaterally through executive power, you're not going to take into account other values and other principles. Um, and you see that so much in the sexual harassment uh, regulations. And then you saw it in the transgender regulations as well. And uh, it really it became clear to me that what was behind this transformation of Title IX, as I called it, is a change in what was viewed as the, the purpose of the entire endeavor, which was not to open doors of opportunity for women in education, which Title IX did in just a remarkable, wonderful effect. You know, we are we are indebted to the fact that uh, women have been given these opportunities. They've rushed through and are doing great work. But the the change was to say, okay, we need to change the entire culture, not just in schools, but of the general population, uh, to change what not only what is sex, what sexual stereotypes are, but what sex is and what sexual mores are, even at the very individual level. So that, um, that's, that's why I ended up writing a book on Title IX, and now I'm trying to finish up uh, the other part of the project. So let's step back a bit. In 2009, first of all, uh, talk about what Title IX is and what it does from its origins. And back in Title IX, how did you imagine, or back in 2009, how did you imagine your chapter would fit into the larger structure of the work? Sure. And also just talk about the larger structure of the work. Sure. Yeah. Um, so let me, uh, let me start with your question about Title IX. Title IX was an amendment to the Omnibus Education Amendments of 1972. Now, that seems like a very obscure act. And the important thing to know about Title IX, its origin, was that this was a little-noted amendment to a very large, relatively non-controversial bill. The sponsors in the uh, House, especially Representative Edith Green, basically told other women, don't lobby on this, it's just going to sail through. And it basically did in the House, and Birch Bay introduced it as a Senate amendment. It kind of sailed through there. Um, later, some people said, well, in 1972, we just passed the Equal Rights Amendment and sent it to the states. Of course, everyone agreed on this. What was the big deal? There was a little discussion of how this would apply to football. And there were some limitations on where it applied. So uh, Title IX does not apply to private undergraduate schools. So schools like Wellesley and Smith and Mount Holyoke uh, are not covered. And uh, there are still a couple of all-male schools that are not covered as long as they're private and undergraduate. The um, act uh, is quite short, and it says anyone who receives federal funding for education shall not discriminate on the basis of sex. And you say, who could disagree with that? 
Um, and the only issue for a very long time, and this was true through the period when I started writing in 2009, was that it's primarily about sports. So that's what most people know about Title IX. There is a, uh, a glossy uh, sports equipment and um, clothing catalog called Title IX, which I think is the only uh, glossy catalog based on a section of the U.S. Code. So that's how thoroughly we identify uh, Title IX with sports for a long time. And there's a very simple reason why sports was such a big deal. And that is because everywhere else in Title IX, everywhere else in education, we say men and women, boys and girls, should compete on the same playing field. And the fact that women basically have done better, we say, hey, tough luck, guys, you got to step up. But in sports, we don't think it's fair, and we don't think it's fair to women especially to say you've got to compete together. So we went to a model, I think quite correctly, I don't think there's too much disagreement about this, of separate but equal, something we never would have allowed in race. But that's why sex and race are different. And then the question became, what is equal? And that turned out to be very difficult, especially because we have two sports, men's basketball and football, that raise a lot of revenue. And football is really hard because there are so many players and it's so expensive to run. So that was a big complexity. And we could talk at length about that. That's what I expected basically this challenge, this, that chapter to be about. And, you know, I have envisioned being called uh, Title IX, the political football. Mm. Then what happened uh, starting in 2011 was this Dear Colleague letter on sexual harassment that took what had been a very slowly uh, evolving set of rules that had first come out of the workplace and applying them to education. And they were ramped up dramatically in 2011 and then 2014, which is the point in which these issues became even more controversial than athletics. So it was a part of, it was an amendment to a bill, does it go all the way back to the original Civil Rights Act of 1964, or? No, actually it doesn't, and that's an interesting fact in itself. Basically, the, the amendments in 1972 were to the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. Um, Edith Green, the sponsor of the act in the House, had wanted to amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Employment Discrimination Section, Title VII, does say sex. And that mm. was an interesting story because uh, some of the Southern conservatives said, we're going to load this up with so many things that will kill it. But mm -hmm. people said, that's right, we shouldn't be able to discriminate on the basis of sex and employment. But in 1972, busing was so controversial that civil rights groups didn't dare open up the Civil Rights Act in Title VI um, mm -hmm. to amendment. Um, mm -hmm. So they went uh, a, a more limited route. So this applies only to education. Um, mm. which is why it took this kind of odd form. Right. And something that I came to realize after reading your book was the, the sort of the main uh, sanction that the federal government uh, had was the threat of the removal of federal funds, but 
it has it has always been a notional sanction. It's never actually happened anywhere. Absolutely. And actually, maybe I can use that as an uh, entree to discussing something that you asked me about earlier, which is, what do I mean by the, the civil rights state? And I mean by that this vast set of regulations and court decisions and federal laws, uh, to some extent state laws, that dis- that prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, sex, disability, age, and a whole wide array of other factors. And we don't usually think of this as a regulatory process, but it is. And it comes down to the question you were just raising. What are the sanctions? So regulations are, are, are rules backed by the threat of some kind of coercion. So what form of coercion is there? The original understanding of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and of Title IX and of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act was that if you are getting federal funds, you shouldn't discriminate. And if you are discriminating, we're going to take away your money. We tried that very briefly in the 1960s on school desegregation against a very recalcitrant Southern segregationist school district. But we have never used it for Title IX, and we've never used it for any other of these so-called unfunded mandates. What we have done, and this is one of the the themes I develop, is to um, enforce them through judicial action rather than through administrative action. So the civil rights state is this very complicated interplay of courts and agencies. And in order to allow the courts to enforce these things, you have to have this thing called a private right of action, which is allowing private citizens to bring these suits. So you have this odd feature of this this regulatory state, where the agency is supposed to issue regulations, and it doesn't, and they're supposed to enforce it through funding cutoffs, but they don't. So the enforcement process for a long time was basically the agency sets guidelines, and the court will accept them and then enforce them in court so that if you don't comply, you are under an injunction so you don't lose the funds, you just enjoined to, to follow the regulations. And I'll just go, go one step further. In recent years, there's been uh, more of a divorce between the courts and uh, the Department of Education under, when it's under democratic control. So the enforcement process has become more complicated, and I would describe the enforcement process today as we will investigate you for so long and in such a costly way you'll finally accept an agreement with us. And that's basically happened with colleges and uh, sexual harassment. So you can start to see why, what a complicated regulatory process is and why you have to trace through how is this stuff enforced and where do the regulations come from. And, and, and that process you describe as one of uh, leapfrogging, right? Yes. Uh, where sort of administrators, activists... Uh, attorneys who are uh, uh, sort of uh, aligned with the uh, with the projects that that come from nonprofit activism groups, mm-hmm. uh, sort of have this form of non-electoral politics that they have generated, um, and it's a novel form, and it, I, it, I, th- I believe that it is the form that has that has generated successive waves of, of, of progressive reform, sometimes including the legislative projects, mm-hmm. uh, process, 
sometimes sidestepping it altogether, but more or less entirely dependent upon the consensus of a handful of people who are in a position and who are credentialed to participate in a certain discourse that then generates outputs that in the case, for example, of the transgender hearing may run far ahead of where the public or the electorate is, but that nonetheless, over the last five years, there's been almost this process of infilling or backfilling the, the agendas that have already been decreed by those within the Department of Justice, the Office of Civil Rights, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. Let me kind of back up and say that we've had this huge change in Title IX since 1972, and basically Congress has n had nothing to do with it. Mm. So that goes to your point of who are the people who are making this change, and they're basically administrators in the Department of Justice and the Department of Education, and judges. And it has taken the form, uh, as as you know, I've used the term leapfrocking, where one institution takes a small step, another one builds on that, another one builds on that, so that the process is highly incremental. Mm. And it's really hard to say where something new was added. Mm. And I point, point out that everyone claims they're not doing anything new, that we, the agency, is just following what the courts and Congress said, and uh, the courts said, we're just following what the agency said. And it's all based on precedent, and we're just uh, being a little more specific so that you get this huge increase over a long period of time where no one claims and no one feels that they have to justify what they're doing. I think this is a real problem. The, you can see this in the athletics area where the, the agency took a few steps very cautiously. Then the First Circuit Court of Appeals took a bigger step, and then the agency then added to that. So incrementally, it grew without, and I, you know, I've been trying to think about how this form of incrementalism differs from that that political scientists wrote about in the 50s and 1960s. And I'd say the big difference is that for the point that you made, which is a very constricted set of actors, hmm. and number two, there's no effort at trying to figure out how well has this worked, because it's in this very rarefied area of administrative agencies that are really not very well connected to the regulated people and judges who only see these things very rarely. So it's an odd form of incrementalism. Right. And so people, people they, it's not part of news coverage. It's a process that happens within certain elite, credentialed, protected mm -hmm. spaces where the, where the interests and the whims of those specific actors end up being determinative of outcomes. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, though, one discovers that you have to get rid of the wrestling team <laughs> or right. something of that order, right? right. And, and this all stems from the fact that if you're going to construe equality in the sports realm to mean parity in the number of athletes, of varsity athletes, and there are many other ways to construe what equality means, but... That, by means of this gradual incrementalist process, we arrived at the conclusion that that's how we were going to define equality. And because the football team has like 100 players, and, and there's no team that has that many players on the female side, 
And since we're going to say numerical equality is the way we're going to define this rather than the percentage of those who express an interest in playing varsity sports, it may turn out to be the case that some smaller men's sports are simply going to be, have to be lopped off in order to accommodate both the power of the football team and the power of a mandate that has been construed in a way that is just very, you know, sort of nakedly uh, quantitative. Mm-hmm. Right. So let me, a uh, couple of points. The first is that um, to figure out how these policies developed required a type of uh, policy archaeology mm. that I must admit just took me a very long time to wade through. Mm. And um, I think most people didn't know it because it's kind of embedded in the federal register notices um, at best. And lower court decisions and dear colleague letters and other letters, so it's really hard to trace this, which is what a, a lot of my book is about. The second point I'd make is that, building on what you said about sports, there, the very constricted set of actors means that we often, we, I think we've taken a bizarre understanding of what equality means in athletics. I think what the, the improvement in athletic opportunities for women brought about by Tarline is generally terrific. On the cover of my book, I have a picture of a, of a woman w- with a lacrosse stick, and I wanted a lacrosse stick because my daughter played lacrosse in high school and a little bit in college, and I thought it was just terrific. So I'm all in favor of that. What I think was a very serious mistake was that the definition of what equality meant applied almost exclusively to varsity athletes. Mm. That is a very limited understanding of athletic opportunity. It affects a very small number of people. And the effect that that emphasis on varsity athletics has had on women is not good. It has limited Mm. their opportunities. It has led to Welch Suggs, who wrote uh, a great book on the subject, said basically it has sucked women into the same pathologies that men's sports has. Mm. And the NCAA was a major problem there. Again, the constricted access, the way we constricted how we thought about these issues led to, I think, a a very poor way of measuring what equality means. So all of the energy was put into uh, mandating this quantitative equality among varsity athletes, and that actually came at the expense of uh, other forms of uh, athletic participation. Is that, is that right? For both men Correct. and women. Yeah. It meant two things. One is that all of the focus was on increasing the number of varsity slots for women, whether or not that's what most women wanted. Mm. It focused uh, those resources on a very small num- number of women. And number two, it meant you had to spend more and more and more on athletics mm. as opposed to libraries and scholarships for um, for poor students, the emphasis on athletics was really decried by the president of Brown University, and he was mm. the only one who really fought it, because everyone right. else, you know, I, I just, I, one, of the, one of the other problems here is that higher education, presidents, provosts, leaders, just are wimps, and they mm. won't fight this, um, and the president of Brown did, and he didn't get much support. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. 
You're listening to the first episode of a new podcast series that I'm launching called Syllabus, in which I will do a deep dive into an academic subject guided by a subject matter expert who will provide me with a reading list and work with me through it over the coming weeks and months. You're listening to a short 25-minute version of what was actually a one-hour and 25-minute conversation. If you want to listen to the whole podcast, which is for paid subscribers only, you have to visit my Substack, which is my home base for both my writing and my podcasting endeavors. WesleyYang.substack.com, where you'll be able to subscribe to a package of writings by myself, outside contributors, and what promises to be a large archive of conversations with a range of academic experts on a range of different subjects. That's wesleyyang.substack.com.